Baptist 21 is a pastor-led voice for Southern Baptists in the 21st century. The B21 podcast will discuss current issues in the SBC with Southern Baptist church leaders. To check out more resources, visit us at baptist21.com. Welcome to the Baptist 21 podcast, where we have conversations about what it means to be Baptist in the 21st century. And I have with me today, first time guest, Jamie Dunlap. Jamie serves as an associate pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church and has been an author of several books. I've read Compelling Community, very, very helpful book. Uh, You've also written Budgeting for Healthy Churches. And then a new book that just came out called Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy. And so that's one we mainly want to talk about. But Jamie, thanks for taking time to be on. Oh, it's great to be here, Nate. Thank you. Appreciate your ministry. Wanted to just get to know you a little bit since first time guest with us. Uh, tell us kind of how you came to know the Lord and then even how you sort of got into vocational ministry and maybe even how you made it to Washington, D.C. Sure. Well, um, I grew up in a Christian family. So my great grandfather was the first in the family to become a Christian through a Plymouth Brethren street preacher. And uh, he raised my grandfather in the Lord, who raised my father in the Lord, who raised me in the Lord. Uh, so I grew up initially in that in a Plymouth Brethren church. And um, I, I still remember, I could have very distinct memories when I was four years old and the gospel suddenly made sense. And I realized I'm a sinner. Jesus died for me. I need to put my trust in him. And uh, sometime growing up, maybe that night, I became a Christian and then um, I remember in high school, really starting to live as a Christian in ways that were counter to uh, kind of what the world would have me do. And by God's grace, he's He's never trusted me to stray too far, uh, and He's kept me close ever since. Praise God. So you grew up in Chicago. How did you sort of get from Chicago to, to D.C. and get into vocational ministry? Yeah, so I came to D.C. for two years in 1998. Um, which I find is not un- unusual for people here. So I uh, finished uh, an engineering degree and had, uh, was thinking about, you know, what do I do next? I was going to go to grad school for engineering, decided instead to take two years and do business in D.C. I'd had uh, a number of different people who had recommended Capital Baptist Church, one of my geology mm-hmm. professors, uh, a friend, the father of a friend growing up, uh, the head of the college fellowship group I was in had all said, go to this little dying Baptist church in DC because it's maybe the Lord's going to do something there. But even if things don't turn around, it'll be an interesting place to be. And so I came here and I just fell in love with the congregation. Mm-hmm. And so my, uh, yeah, my two years extended the summer before I moved here, I rode my bicycle across the country and had really terrible weather. I was with my roommate, just the two of us. And so we started to sleep in a church basement. So every night, a different church, you know, United Methodist one night, uh, Church of Christ the next night, uh, Roman Catholic Church the next night, a few Baptist churches back to the United Methodists. And so I met a different pastor every night. And I had always grown up in pretty solid, faithful churches with uh mm-hmm godly elders and uh, good preaching growing up in college. And I was really shocked at how bad the situation was. Pastors who didn't Mm. seem to be Christians, pastors who didn't, they were lazy. They didn't care about their people. And Mm. so when I moved here to DC, I was really seriously considering, gosh, 
maybe I shouldn't be in engineering and business. Maybe I should be a pastor just because the need's so great. I can share the gospel. I have a pulse that makes me better than many of these people, mm. which was a good degree of self-righteousness, but also <laughs> I think, you know, some accurate assessment of what was out there. And so that's when I first started thinking about being a pastor. I came to work for Mark Devers, his assistant for a year. Basically over the course of that year, decided I'd be a terrible pastor. I wasn't very good with people. I was much better with numbers. I went back into the business world, started serving as a non-staff elder, grew up a bit. And uh, when we needed someone on the church staff who had the heart of a pastor and the head of a business person, uh, I was not the first place we looked, but when the first choice <laughs> didn't turn out, uh, the elders started talking to me and I realized oh, this is actually a pretty good fit with who I am. And mm. I've never stopped wanting to be a pastor. I just decided it wasn't practical. Once it became practical and the, the best way to serve my church was to not be a non-staff elder, be a staff elder. I was really delighted with the idea of quitting my job and coming here. So that was uh, 14 years ago. So I was in business for 10 years. Uh, now I've been in uh, full-time ministry, uh, paid ministry for the last 14 mm. years. Since we are a Baptist podcast, can you tell us uh, just a little bit about the Plymouth Brethren and then how you made the shift uh, to being more faithful to the New Testament? <laughs> uh, <laughs> to becoming, to well, becoming Baptist, my, I'm, I'm messing Yeah, my church did that uh, growing up. So they were Plymouth Brethren, oh, wow. but they became convinced that they needed better preaching. than their, So the Plymouth Brethren historically have had uh, its elder rule. Um, and, uh, they have vocational ministers, but those ministers travel. So you, you, they're never at one place, any point in time. So you'll have a visiting minister for a month and then you go back to your elders for a while. And my church just felt like we wanted better preaching than that. And so we hired a pastor and in the process of doing that shifted from the Plymouth brethren to the evangelical free church, because we were close to Trinity seminary, getting a lot of their folks, yeah. um, and so I grew up in a church with a full-time pastor and elders. Uh, honestly, it, you know, my becoming a diehard Baptist uh, happened partly through the ministry of Mark Dever, but mainly in uh, 2004, I left here, moved to San Francisco with my wife uh, and joined a Presbyterian church there, which was really good for us spiritually. But mm. I also began to realize some of the the ways that a, 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 a church's polity affects its culture. Uh, and I realize that, uh, um, maybe put it this way, you don't have real responsibility without real authority. And I'm sure my Presbyterian friends would uh, take great offense at what I'm saying, but uh, I think what I experienced was when you take the authority away from the congregation, you make that you make that responsibility for each other more theoretical than real. And so it was, I think, seeing that connection with authority and responsibility that made me realize, oh, this stuff isn't just correct, it matters. And having congregational polity is going to affect the temperature of the congregation. Not, not that it's guaranteed to give you a culture of discipling, but it's going to push you in that direction. That's great stuff. Helpful stuff. Let's let's kind of shift a little bit to the book that uh, you just released. Um, again, it's entitled "Love the Ones Who Drive You Crazy." Uh, I, I I mean, I sort of want to ask tongue in cheek, uh, why this book and why now? <laughs> what what's unique about uh, our current climate in you know North American evangelicalism? 
that would prompt a book like this. And we'll talk more about the content as well, but just would love to know kind of what was stirring in you as you began to, to think about this book. Great question. Uh, I should say the title is somewhat tongue in cheek. So if if you're buying the book because you want to give it to the ones who drive you crazy, you're in for a <laughs> sad surprise. <laughs> it's about changing you, not changing them, uh, no. which hopefully is you know much more in line with what the scriptures would have us do. I, I wrote the book because I feel pressures in my own church toward fragmentation, and I hear it and see it all over the evangelical landscape, uh, that we're in a time of division. And yeah. Uh, yeah, the Reformation was a time of division, so when the gospel is at stake, we have to divide. And one of the great failures of uh, the years since the Reformation has been churches that go theologically liberal because they're not willing to stand up and fight when the gospel is at stake. Yeah. And yet, uh, when we stand up and fight when the gospel is not at stake, and the, there's more nuance to that, so I'll, I'll believe sure. that as kind of a crude category there, uh, I think we end up doing what Paul calls the works of the flesh in Galatians 5 uh, with factions. And so— uh, the book was written for those situations where the gospel is not at stake. Uh, you feel like you and these other people who have differences from you in terms of cultural background or politics or uh, parenting styles or preferences about music or, or whatever it might be, you realize we should theoretically be able to be parts of the same church. But gosh, it's hard. Uh, what biblical resources do I have to not merely put up with them, but actually build a friendship with that person? And I think a good answer for you is uh, Paul's advice that he gives to the Jew-Gentile churches in Rome uh, in Romans 12 and a little bit of 13 and 14 in the beginning of 15, where he says, look, you guys have very little in common other than Christ. Uh, you come from wildly different sections of society, but as with all the New Testament churches, we didn't plant a Roman church or a Gentile church in one part of the city, a Jewish church in the other part of the city. Uh, these churches are uh, united in that diversity from the very beginning, and that's really hard. And so Paul gives us, I think, some very powerful truths in these passages that we can apply to our own situations today so that we can persevere in love in a way that shows that the gospel is bigger and better than the things that would threaten to divide us. Maybe let me ask you another more abstract question before getting to the, to the more of the actual content of the book. The book is written is, I mean, it's primarily written for the local church level. So you're concerned about people getting along in the context of their own covenant commitments and their membership in their local church. Yep. But this certainly also has to have some application at the kind of more universal level uh, of just how there seems to be, again, a lot of yeah discord among people who are actual Christians, not just discord among um, people who, you know, aren't Christians and say they are. There's certainly some of that as well. Uh, but just as you think about the larger kind of evangelical landscape, yeah, help us think through this this concept at a universal level, and then we'll kind of drill down into the to the local level. Yeah, well, the book is going to be almost useless as you think about loving people who drive you crazy who are not Christians. And that, that, I, I hope that gives you a little bit of confidence that this is a distinctly Christian book. 
this this is about realizing the unity the Spirit has given to us that Jesus bought for us with His blood, and so it works with Christians. It's not just going to make you a, a nicer person. Uh, I do think that the book has some relevance, say, for the people who are Christians who you disagree with on Twitter or X. Sorry, uh, we'll use the new name. <laughs> not or, sure what we call it now. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> what, whatever yeah. platform you're talking about. Um, and yet, I do think that uh, the principles Paul gives us in Romans 12, especially, well, 14 as well, really do apply in a unique way to the covenant community of a church where uh, you don't just love each other in a theoretical way, but you actually have to build a relationship together and where you have a particular commitment to each other through that covenant of membership that you don't have with someone who you kind of randomly run across in social media. So I think it's useful for the scenario you're describing, but I would guess a good, you know, 40% of the book is just not going to work outside of your local church. Yeah. And it is, it makes sense that even in some of the, the kind of disagreements on larger social media, when you actually sit down with some of those people you disagree with actually over a meal face to face in their presence, you sometimes you may still disagree when you leave that conversation, but you start to understand, hey, there's a reason they're coming from the bent they come from, and, and there's a there's better understanding. And you're just forced into that, obviously, with relationships you have uh, in the context of the local church, which, you know, most of the time, obviously, can create more greater conflict because you have to see them all the time. But it also gives a, a great um, opportunity for, for better love and better understanding among people. Um, let me just maybe... We'll just dig into a couple of the chapters then, uh, yeah. and we'll just maybe start with the first one. Uh, you know, I love the provocative question, so I'll just ask it how you have it in the chapter. Why did God put difficult people in my church? So give us just a little bit of a summary overview of what you're driving at there. Again, I don't want to give away the whole book, but uh, would love just to kind of give us a little snapshot of what how you answer a question like that in your book. Yeah, well, the basic premise of the book is if you're going to build your church on, on Christ alone— and not Christ and shared taste in music and Christ and shared parenting style and Christ and shared politics and Christ and shared culture background. I think those are the four categories I gave you earlier. Then you are going to discover you're in church with people you don't see eye to eye with on some really important matters. You mm-hmm. see eye to eye on the gospel and obviously your statement of faith in church covenant, and you see eye to eye on Jesus Christ and your love for him, but a whole bunch of other things you're you're going to find sometimes they drive you crazy. And sometimes uh, that tension is a sign of sin, but sometimes that tension is a sign that you've actually done everything right and you really have built your church on Christ alone. So why did God put difficult people in your church? Well, because as you learn to love them, not just because you ought to love them, but you discover that you really can build a friendship because you share Christ in common, that that shows that Christ is, as I said uh, before, that Christ is better and bigger and stronger than the, the things that the society around us would expect to divide us. Mm. Second chapter is the question, how can I love? And then in quotations, those people. So now mm. start thinking even just across the four categories you even mentioned, you know, differences of opinions on education. Obviously, politics is a massive one. I'll ask probably some more specific questions along that in a minute as we move into 2024. Um, but just give us a snapshot of that chapter too. How can I love those people? Yeah, uh, because you've been loved by God. Hmm. You know, we love because he first loved us. 
Uh, Romans 12 begins, you know, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Uh, I see a lot of connection between Jesus' uh, passage in Luke 6 to love your enemies and what we see here in Romans 12, 13, 14. And there as well, Jesus says, be merciful even as your heavenly Father is merciful. And so if you if you get to the point where you say, I cannot possibly love that person over there, I'll just avoid them instead. I want to say, brilliant diagnosis, bad prescription, right? A brilliant diagnosis in that that's kind of the whole point, right? God put you in church with people who you can't love in your own strength because his purpose in the church is not to glorify your ability to love, but the power of his love for you. And so the right prescription is to say, I can't do it myself. And yet, as I increasingly comprehend the depths to which Christ has loved me, then I'm going to find a different kind of power and enthusiasm and patience in my love than if I just look to my, my own internal resources. It obviously sounds like there's a lot of you preparing your heart with the gospel as you even personally think about dealing with somebody who may be different than you. Um, are there are there practical things that well maybe I, let me ask you two ways are there practical things that you're doing in your heart obviously to cultivate that some of the texts you've already shared are obviously one of them but even may, maybe as you're walking into a meeting or a, a, an encounter you think this is going to maybe be difficult even just some practical things you're saying to yourself praying to yourself but also how are you maybe practically shepherding people in the context of CHBC who may be struggling with these things just some little practical things that they can be doing as they're going into these encounters that may proved to be ones that could be filled with conflict. Yeah, I should say that the book very much came out of uh, pastoring a church through the challenging years of 2020, 2021, when, I mean, my church is six blocks from the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, we were inside the security perimeter during January 6th. Uh, we had riots and protests and sometimes kind of some of one, some of the other in our neighborhood. Uh, we had to sue our government in order to meet outside during COVID. Um, and all those things were, uh, controversial. And I have a congregation of people who are opinionated and they don't mind expressing their opinions. And sometimes those opinions were directed at me. And I had many very difficult conversations over the course of that period of time. And yet I learned a lot from the people who disagreed with me because I saw them loving me, respecting me as their pastor, even as they were heated in their disagreement with me. And I, at the same time, I was using those months to memorize uh, the back half of the book of Romans. And I just kept kind of mapping uh, what I was seeing in my congregation and what I was learning in my own heart with what Paul was given us here in Romans. So really practically, I learned the value of confession. Uh, that when I was mad at someone in my church and I was throwing a pity party, I realized, okay, I need to love them better. And one source of power in that love is to confess the sinful attitude I have right now toward the people that God bought with his own blood, as mm -hmm. we read in the book of Acts, and realize that God has put up with way more in me than I have ever had to put up with them and them. And that really gives me a... a, a, a generosity toward them in my heart because they've been loved by God and I want to do what's good for him. Mm. Um, I think another practical thing you see in this passage is just um, reminding myself that Christ is worth more than comfort. I want to be comfortable. 
prices worth more than comfort. Very often, uh, the choice I have to make in that hard conversation basically comes down to, am I going to pursue Christ or am I going to pursue comfort? And yeah. I see all kinds of good examples around me in my congregation of people who have said, Christ is worth more than my comfort. And they're, they're inspiring to me. And at least we, most of us know this experientially, whenever we pressed into a hard relationship that has had conflict, but that has come out on the other side when there's, you know, honesty and confession and those, it actually ends up creating the, some of the most, more strong bonds you'll ever find. And I think by avoiding those things, we're missing out on some of the best things that the Lord has for us uh, in just relationships with other Christians. Yeah. And I think that's an important thing to remember is that these passages in Romans are not just about doing the right thing. They're about doing the, the good thing, uh, yeah. the joyful thing, that the reason why you have this really sweet bond with that person who you used to, you know, really have a hard time with is because you've learned to ground that friendship in the commonality you share in Christ and not because you got nothing else to build it off of. Yeah. And, yeah. uh, and gosh, you know, a, a friendship bounded, grounded in Christ is so much more a source of joy than a friendship grounded in a shared love of politics or baseball or, you know, what, what have you. Yeah. A couple more questions and then I'll get you out of here. But the audience of this book is fairly broad, uh, I would assume. Yes, it's 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 written for the pew. Uh, I think yeah. pastors will hopefully find it to be encouraging, particularly the introduction. Uh, but it's very much written for the, the, you know, the average member of a church. With, with a book like this, I'd be remiss not to just get your thoughts, uh, lessons you think that pastors can tuck away for shepherding their people given that 2024 is on the way, another political season coming. Give us just a few things that you would just encourage us, counsel us as pastors in ways to, to love and serve and even equip and train our people in the season, in the year that's about to come before us. Yeah, well, maybe more clear in my church than in most churches, you need to remember that politics is not two colors. It's like 18 different colors. Uh, and you can have radical political disagreement among church members, even if everybody ends up voting for the same guy at the top of the ticket. Uh, mm. So don't assume that uh, because your church happens to be united in that one decision, you're necessarily not going to have conflict elsewhere. Um, uh, I think it's also important to keep in mind uh, that where there are people who disagree with you politically and they're Christians, they may well be acting based on their faith in a way that you don't appreciate. Uh, one thing I talk about, particularly from Romans 14, because I think this is actually the advice Paul gives us in Romans 14, is, you know, we're often told to assume the best. Well, that's moderately useful, uh, but I think that's kind of the gateway to asking the question a Christian should ask, which is, how does your love for Jesus motivate that decision that you just made? Uh, and I think that's a, a much more Christian approach than just assuming the best. And sometimes you discover that you were right and they're actually, you know, violating their conscience and that's good for them to know and have a conversation about. But sometimes you're like, oh, okay, I see how a Christian could actually think differently than me precisely because they're Christian, which is exactly where Paul goes in Romans 14. Um, and uh, I think it's also important to recognize that different churches will draw lines in different places. Uh, and, uh, and we need to recognize that, you know, my church may decide that, you know, voting for that candidate is an excommunicatable offense. And that other church over there says, well, we're not willing to draw that line in that place. 
And uh, I think that's just the nature of having a disestablished church that we're going to end up drawing lines at different places. Some churches are going to be more homogenous politically. Some churches are going to be more diverse politically. And uh, you need to make sure that you're in a church where you trust the leaders. Uh, and when they draw lines in slightly different places than you're comfortable with, either excluding what you think should be included or including what you think should be excluded, those are good conversations to have, uh, but recognize that your church may do things differently than other churches. I hope that wasn't too good. theoretical, but. No, I mean, that's helpful. I mean, I, I think we we could dig into some practical things, specific things, but then I think that might miss, uh, you know, I think sometimes we get specific applications. Sometimes people are like, well, that doesn't apply to me. And it's easy just to dismiss yeah. that. I think, I think it's helpful. And so, yeah, I'll, I'll get you out of there on that, brother. I, I thank you for writing this book. I do hope that pastors will pick it up and give it out to their people. Uh, certainly been helpful for me. I've, I've only read the first three chapters so far and uh, thankful for your work. And uh, yeah, I appreciate you taking time to come on the podcast. Absolutely. Great to talk to you. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Swing One podcast. Thank you for listening to the Baptist 21 podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at our website, baptist21.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with others. It would really help us out. If you ever have thoughts or ideas for future interviews, please reach out to us at our email, baptist21 at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast.